My name is Jared. If I haven't met you guys, I'm one of the elders here at SOMA. Um, I'm excited to share with you this morning. It was fun getting a little uh, little preview. Um, yeah, so we've been in this series called The Disciple Making Life. And basically the whole overarching goal was to spin it out week upon week, what does it really look like to submit all of our life under the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus? What does it look like in a day-in, day-out, rhythm-based approach where we can actually know whether or not that is our goal and whether or not we're doing it? And as I was thinking about where we've been so far in the series, uh, it occurred to me that we've assumed at least two big things entering into the series. And the first thing that we assumed was that you all want to live a disciple-making life. Um, that that's something that sounds appealing to you. Um, that that's why you're here on a Sunday morning is because you want to learn how to live a disciple-making life, which is a big assumption. And the second thing we've assumed is that any of us coming from any walk of life are actually aware of what our true wants and desires are and can really put our finger on them. And James K. Smith um, wrote this book called You Are What You Love, And he makes this bold statement at the beginning of the book. And he says, the real first question of discipleship is not what do you know. It's not what do you need to learn in order to be effective to to follow Jesus. The real first question of discipleship is what do you want? What do you want in life? See, your wants govern everything about your life, really. They govern your priorities, your goals, what you pursue. Um, your choices that you make on a daily basis. And see, most screenwriters would agree with James K. Smith's proposition. They'll tell you that the pivotal question that moves a character into their story is, what do you want? Aaron Sorkin puts it this way. He says, story is about intention and obstacle. Someone wants something, something standing in their way of getting it. Doesn't matter what they want, They want money, they want the girl, they want to get to Philadelphia. They have to want it really bad. And if they can need it, even better. And whatever is standing in their way has got to be formidable. See, our wants are ultimately at the foundation of what makes us who we are. It's what the Greeks called our telos, our vision of the good life that as you look out at the horizon, it orients your life. It says, when I, that's my true north. That's where my compass is heading. Um, but rather than keeping it theoretical this morning, I wanted to hear from you guys. If I were just to broadly ask, what is it you want in life? How would you even articulate that? What would you say? And this is a time where you can interact and answer. Rest. Rest. Peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for there to be respite from the constant craziness of life. Influence. Influence for your life to matter and to feel like you're affecting something. Yeah. Yeah. To be accepted, to be known, to be cared for. Mm -hmm. To be content. To feel like you have enough and are not constantly seeking for more. Mm-hmm. To be competent and effective. Yeah. To not feel like you're 
you know, as I often, I started a new job a few weeks ago, felt like I was faking it till I make it, like, I don't really know how you do what you do, but I'm going to try until I get there. Yeah. Competency. To know God is happy with you. Mm. To know that He loves you as you are, and that He's not waiting for you to be some, become something else. Yeah. Honestly, a lot of stuff. A lot of things, right? So many wants. So many wants all bubbling around. Um, but under everything, I think there's a constant current that we can trace that can be boiled down to two things. You want your life to be enjoyable. You want to have joy that lasts. And you want your life to matter. See, this morning we're talking about life with God. And we're going to go through what it is, how to cultivate one, and how it leads to real fruitfulness and lasting joy that hopefully plugs into some of those service level once that we've just uh, shared. So if you look with me this morning, we'll be in John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Father, I thank you that you have created the world to work in such a way that we bear fruit when we abide in you. And that you've called us into this uh, wondrous life of worship and enjoyment of you um, that doesn't terminate in us, but, um, but bears fruit outside of us. And Jesus, I pray that as we um, look in your word this morning, as we theorize and dream about what it can look like to pursue life with you, to abide in you more fully, um, that you would catch our hearts up in joy and wonder and excitement of the life that you've given us and the life that you are inviting us into more of this morning. I pray that you would speak through me um, and that you would awaken our affections for you, Jesus, this morning as we marvel at who you are and what you've done for us. I pray all this in your name. Amen. So first, what is life with God? 
to Jesus very simply and very um, creatively in this passage defines life with God through this metaphor. That life with God is abiding or remaining in the vine. And all the translations pretty much translate it one of those two ways. I think because neither of those really perfectly captures the full reality. It's an unusual thing to call someone to, to abide. It's an active word. It's not a passive default state that you'll just fall into accidentally. It denotes constancy, ever-presence, something that doesn't go away or isn't lost, but also active engagement. It's not something that's going to happen accidentally. It implies that unless this is an active pursuit of our lives, abiding in Jesus, the inactive, unconscious reality will be a drifting away. That there's not a neutral. It's like being on a hill and not having your car in park, not having the parking brake on, and not putting on the gas. You will move one direction, one way or another. See, we abide in whatever it is we truly want in our heart of hearts, whatever it is we love. To some of us, the question, what do you love, might seem a little more accessible than what do you want. And for most of us, or for a lot of us, if we call ourselves a Christian, you might say, well, immediately I know that I love Jesus. That's an easy question to answer. He is the true north of my life. Um, but maybe that's based on mental assent, this idea that, well, I know that he's the most worthy of love. I know that he has done the most to demonstrate his love for me. Therefore, I love him. But the problem with that is that it's not based on a biblical understanding of love. It's based more on Enlightenment-era thinking of Descartes, who said famously, I think, therefore I am, which could be boiled down to, I know what I love because I love what I think. But that's not the reality. Uh, James K. A. Smith sums up this belief as thinking thingism, that as human beings, we're primarily, as Western people, we primarily believe that all of our actions, all of the scope of our life and our choices is wrapped up in deliberate thinking and intention. But as many of you have probably experienced, our actions, our wants, our desires is governed far more by cultural, environmental stimuli. Um, our wants are developed by habits that form, whether we intentionally form those habits or those habits just kind of arose from the ether. And I had a kind of a wake-up call to this reality of our wants being formative, even the unconscious ones. And this, this happened in 2017, and it was at our Good Friday service. And I was going through, many of you have been to our services that we do each year for Good Friday, and we usually do Stations of the Cross, where at each station you're meditating on what it looked like as Jesus approached the cross and what he was about to do. And as I was doing that, going through each station, I felt like I was watching someone else's religion. It was like having a dream that you wish was true, sort of feeling separated from that, seeing that deep well of joy that maybe you've known from seasons past but not quite being able to get to it, like there was something in between you. 
And see, up to that point, I had rarely made consistent, conscious choices to abide in Jesus. It was sporadic. I would read my Bible here. I would read my Bible there. Like, in the formative years of my faith, I had been very uh, passionate about Bible study. But in the more recent years, and as, like, the troubles of life sort of... um, sort of grew in, some of those practices and desires had given way. And I realized that I had been, for the, in large part, in the months leading up to that, maybe the years, I had been being formed elsewhere. So I would have told you, I love Jesus, obviously I'm here, I'm an elder in the church, obviously I wouldn't have pursued this life if I didn't love Jesus. But my once had been formed elsewhere. But that was a stark call to action for me. And it led to um, what began as my renewed pursuit of life with God. See, when we find ourselves askew like that in our loves, where I knew in my, my mind, like, I love this Jesus that I'm celebrating here on this Friday night, but why is my heart not there? It's not something we can think our way out of. We can't just like go back to all of the thoughts that made us love Jesus and be like, I, you know, I'm still there. Like those thoughts still ring true. Um, it's something that we have to want our way out of. So how do we abide in Jesus to see our once reoriented towards love and joy? How do we cultivate a life with God that is actually formative in a way where our wants are directed towards the place where they can be fully met and fully um, achieved? So to cultivate a life with God, we abide in Jesus through what I want to call and what James K. Smith calls love-shaping practices. So what I want to describe this morning for you in sort of very practical, accessible terms is how to develop your own personal liturgy of love-shaping practices. Some traditions, like the Anglican Church, call this a rule of life. And this might sound very like I don't know, textbook or strange to you to come up with practices that you intentionally go to. But what we don't realize is that we have those practices already. So the work to be done is in examining what the practices we currently have in our life are forming. I had this realization the other day. Um, As Camden gets older, he's like, I don't know where he gets this from, but he's like interested in Nikes and shoes and how he looks. And it's like, I didn't intentionally teach that to him, but somehow his wants are being formed in a way where that's important. And so as, I don't know how this came up, but he was like, can we, can we look at some pictures of shoes on your phone to think about what shoes I want to get when school starts? So I was like, sure, we can look at some pictures of shoes. But even that, I was like, are we really doing this? <laughs> And then as we're sitting on the couch, we're like scrolling through and scrolling through and scrolling through. And I was like, this is shaping us. This is shaping his brain. Like, yes, we have to like buy clothes and there are things that have to be done. But like, this, is a sh- this isn't just a neutral act. Like, this is shaping who he is. And then Lucy comes and is like, I want to look at shoes too. What shoes are we looking at? And, she- and so it became this whole thing. Um, and so what I want to talk about this morning is realizing... We already have those practices, 
and beginning to replace those unconscious ones, really identify them for the telos that they're drawing out of our hearts, our tr- the true north that they're trying to implant that we aren't intending, and trying to reorient towards practices that will get us where we want to go. So I'm going to outline three categories of practices. The first is listening. So one way of listening is silence and stillness before God. And the, the overall idea of this is quieting your mind to hear from the Spirit. So the best way I recommend doing this, or the best way of starting, is to have a paper. Because ultimately, when things get quiet, when nothing else is going on, the to-do list is going to come. Especially if you're a type A, or one on the Enneagram, or whatever other designated descriptor there are for that type of human being. Why are you looking at me? I don't... <laughs> no, no accusations are being made. <laughs> So have a paper in front of you, because those to-do list items are going to start coming, and what you need to do is just write them all down so that they're not in your brain anymore. And then just listen. And when you listen, pay attention to where your mind goes. Because where your mind goes are probably where God wants to speak to you. It's the things that you're concerned with, maybe the things that you want, maybe the things that are hard. And be present with God in those moments. Ask him what he wants to say to you about each of those areas that comes up. And it's good to do this for different lengths of time because you have different experiences and different things that God will do. Uh, do it in short periods of time where you just like take 10 minutes at the beginning of your morning. It doesn't take a long time. Where you get alone, you don't have any sounds around you, which is really hard if you have small children, to wake up very early, which I also recommend doing because it's just awesome. I'm not a morning person, so to say that, it took a lot of God producing that desire in me, changing my wants for that. Um, so do it every morning, 10 minutes. Commute in your shower. There's nobody around you in your shower, right? If you shower in the morning. I do, obviously. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so every once a, once a morning, short times, and then also take a longer period that you do less frequently, like a full day or half day, either annually or quarterly. And for these times, um, it's helpful to have a structure, because if you just listened, let your mind go, eventually you're going to get bored, you might fall asleep, and eventually, yeah, by the end of it, you're probably going to be really dissatisfied with what came out of the time that you devoted to it. So it's good to have a structure. And one of these structures I learned from uh, Chuck Deschwind, who's kind of an older father-type figure in the Soma family of churches. Um, he's sort of like a pastor to pastors where people go to him for encouragement, and he's just kind of an all-around awesome guy. And so he says, bring a journal with you. Make three columns in the journal. Under one column, put self. Under one, put family. And then the third one, put community. And ask the Spirit what he wants to speak to you about each of those areas. And just let your mind go. And if something comes, even if you're not sure whether it's valid or not, just write it down. Um, See, it's amazing after the fact to go back and reread those journals. Because it's sort of like hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you in your own words. Where you hear things in a way that you understand them. Yeah, I did this recently. um, Robin and I, actually, this was totally her, not me. Um, She set out last year that let's take two weekends a year and get away and kind of build that into our marriage rhythm and make that a priority. 
And that happened this year. Also, probably do a lot to her, her, um, her driving that and making that a priority. And it's been great. So we went to Ojai um, in January, and I did. I kind of tried to go through this of going through. I had these little journals that fit in my wallet, and so I had like three or four that were saved up from the past year or two. And I brought them all with me, and I went through them one by one. And it's amazing the things that jump out at you. See, immediately I was like, I can't believe that I used to struggle with these things. Like, those aren't even on my mind anymore. And unless we take the time to do that, we'll completely miss all of the freedom and deliverance we've experienced in Jesus. Because when something stops being an issue, it stops being an issue. And you're not going to remember. You're not going to remember, oh man, I was really praying hard about that a year ago. Um, So you're not going to remember unless you write it down. And the other thing that happens which is equally meaningful and helpful, is it allows you to mourn the areas of inaction. Um, Not in a shameful way, but as a call to more life in Jesus. Because you'll have these moments where you're like, wow, I wrote down this direct thing. The Spirit told me to do X, Y, Z, to go talk to this person and say X, Y, Z. And I just didn't do that. I was afraid. And it allows you to repent and to say, Jesus, help me. Like, change my my wants to be in accordance with your wants. Um, And then that leads to greater fruit later on as a result of that. So that's what listening can look like. And there are lots of other resources for that. Um, Actually, as I was preparing, I was like, this is great for me to tell tell you all this now, um, but it'd be much more helpful to have it written up. So at least this middle portion about how to practically do this. So I'm going to write a blog post this week that we'll put on our website where you can kind of access all of these different things. And I'll go through and um, actually, if you have suggestions, feel free to email those to me and I can aggregate them and we can do it that way. But I'll put a resource out there where we have all of these descriptions of how to do this um, from listening, um, through prayer, through um, all the rest of the things that we're going to talk about. So, moving on from listening, another way, or another way of listening is through prayer. And I want to share a few specific prayers, because a lot of times people come and they're like, oh, I want to have a prayer life, but I don't really know how to do it. Do I just pray whatever comes to mind, which is good and awesome and helpful? But then there's also, um, there's also great things that can come from doing sort of repetitive, specific prayers that you know really well. Um, and being able to listen to God in a way where your mind's not getting distracted by what you're thinking about, coming up with words. And so the first of these kind of prayers I want to talk about is called the Jesus Prayer. And it's been around for a long, long time. Um, it started in the Eastern tradition, probably actually started in the early church, but most of the traditions that um, keep that make this a, a big part of their spiritual practices are Eastern Christian traditions like Orthodox Church. And it goes like this. It's really simple and easy to remember. It's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, the point is to orient your mind with as simple a thought as possible. To orient your mind towards the reality that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the Messiah of God sent to deliver you from slavery to sin. The slavery that is destroying our world and destroying you that you're not aware of unless you take, take a second to stop and listen. He's God's own son, whom he did not withhold from us. And Jesus gave his life to offer you you mercy. 
through forgiveness of sins, we don't have to stand condemned and captive any longer. And that's why we sit there and meditate on Jesus coming to offer us mercy through this prayer. Um, It's for that reason that I also like to add my own second stanza, because I don't want to leave it at pleading for mercy. I want to remember that we have assurance of the Father's grace. Um, So the second stanza that I wrote, you can change or add however you want, is, Father of grace, thank you for making me your son. And then if anyone wants to write a third stanza for the Spirit to make it Trinitarian and make it a whole package, which I'm a fan of, um, please do it, and we'll, uh, we'll add that in and incorporate it. And many people combine the Jesus prayer with uh, sort of more popular in our day and age uh, mindfulness practices, like breathing exercises, which can be a, a, a good thing to do that, that can help you focus and be present with God. And also include some resources for that on the blog post. So that's the first prayer. The second prayer, and this is one of my favorites, and it's a perfect follow-up, because now you've just reminded yourself who God is and what he's done. And now you ask, Jesus, where are you coming to me today? And this is not mine. I didn't invent this, and I don't know how long it's been around. But the person I heard it from is Pete Scazzaro, who runs this website called EmotionallyHealthy.org. And it's just a great resource for engaging your whole person with Jesus and what he's done for you and letting him actually change and shape your practices like we're talking about. And the the great thing about this prayer is how how unpredictable Jesus is. Because it's always different what comes out of that, for me at least. Sometimes it's a passage that all of a sudden just comes to mind. I'm like, I have to read this passage right now and I don't know why. Sometimes it's a call to obedience. Like if I happen to have been rereading an old journal, it's like, well, obviously that's where Jesus is coming to me today. I need to go to that person that I was supposed to go to six months ago, and now I get to experience new life in him today through obeying, because there's not like really a time stamp on when obedience stops being a good idea. Um, (laughs) Sometimes it's a book to read that he knows will just set my heart ablaze with renewed love for him. And that's been the most recent one um, where I've just been reading a lot more and really enjoying a life with God through learning about him. And sometimes, yes, it's just really quiet. And it's peaceful, peaceful. And that's okay. And there's no judgment or well I didn't hear something today so maybe I didn't do it right or maybe God wasn't with me it's like that's not true sometimes you just need peace Um, see I don't know there's this quote I thought it was Picasso but I'm not sure but the gist of it is is, I want to be at my easel when the inspiration comes because what about that day where God was going to say this one thing to you through silence and stillness? Not that he can't speak to you through other ways. But what if, what if you weren't there? Like, sure, he'll still, he will still accomplish his will. But I don't want to miss out on that. That's like missing out on the best part of life. So that's what listening looks like. The next category of love-shaping practices is receiving we've kind of been circling around this idea as creatures that are more than thinking things who are formed more by our wants than what we think and what our thoughts are. Um, and the truth, like we've been talking about, is that most of those are unconscious ones, and they're formed by unconscious habits. 
So if our wants shape us more than our thoughts, bear with me in this little train of thought, and our wants are being formed unconsciously, then that means, unless interrupted, we're basically asleep at the wheel, being formed into something we aren't aware of and aren't intending. We should be a little bit of a twinge of alarm, like, am I aware of what's forming me right now? And there's also another resource I'll include for how to take one of those days alone with God and, and asking Him to go through your life and seeing what are the what are the things that are forming your wants? What are those unconscious things? And starting to draw those out and examine, like kind of turn them over and look at them for the, the telos or the true north that they're growing and forming in you. See, every swipe of your phone shaping you into something. It's not a neutral act. Is it making you a creature living more for approval, only to finding it, only finding it to wane and having to go back for more? Every social media rant is someone whispering in your ear, panic! And somehow, all of the issues in your own life, which maybe, maybe they are really intense and they require a lot of attention, but they, don't, they shouldn't induce panic. Somehow they're imbued with new sense of anxiety, though, because of the anxiety that we feed on from some of those outlets. See, media consumption, advertising, consumerism, politics, they're all unconsciously forming in you something. And it's fine. I'm not saying to withdraw from all these areas. But unless you're aware of it, it's forming in you a telos that you did not choose. And that should be disturbing. <laughs> and usually it's under the radar, completely unbeknownst to us. Our wants are changing, our unconscious practices and habits are changing. But sometimes it's literally posted on a sign. I have a picture I took the other day, if we have it in the slides. No picture? Okay. It's all right. I'll, uh, I'll paint the picture for you. Walking to uh, meet someone for lunch. Went to the platform in Culver City. And if you've been there, they call it curated retail space which basically just means everything is very beautiful, but no one's probably making any money. <laughs> because everything's too expensive. And sure, there are people who come in from Beverly Hills and other areas of the city, and the wealthy people who do live in Culver City, I'm sure, shop there. And I've gotten coffee there and tacos, so I'm not knocking it by any means. Um, but one of the businesses has a sign out front that says, see if I can remember off the top of my head. It says... Saving the earth and looking damn good doing it. Or no, it was an invitation. It wasn't saying they are. It was saying, save the earth and look damn good doing it. So it's like tongue-in-cheek. They're obviously joking, but they're not at the same time. It's saying, if you buy our product, not only will you be sustainable and help save the earth, you also look damn good. And who doesn't want that? Let that be your true north. Just come into our doors buy something, receive from us, and we'll form you into the person you want to be. See, sometimes kids' books make the most sense out of life because they just boil things down into simple terms we can understand. And Sally Lloyd-Jones is the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible that we use for a lot of our kids' curriculum. It's just a great um, book for kids. 
But her other book is actually my favorite. It's called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. And it's like a little kid's devotional book. And our favorite, the favorite one in our family, especially when the kids were a little bit younger, was this metaphor of a car's gas tank. And it goes through a series of questions asking, what if you put peanut butter in a car's gas tank? And the kids thought it was the most hilarious thing ever to say, no, that's terrible. Um, and so you just go through that over and over again. It's really fun. But then the final statement of the entry is, your heart was made for love and joy, not sin and tears. And that's kind of become the shorthand in our house for where are your choices coming from right now? Are you pointed towards love and joy in Jesus or towards sin and tears and self? Um, and she's basically just echoing Jesus, number one, and also Augustine, who famously said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So now I want to suggest a few things that you can consciously receive in place of the things that we're already unconsciously receiving. Uh, To find your rest and to fill your tank, as it were, with the right stuff. The first is getting a reading plan. It's very simple. And there are so many, and you can't really find a bad one because they all include the Bible. Um, Another one is finding podcasts that encourage and challenge you. Bible Project has a really good one. They actually have two, one called My Strange Bible, which sort of like has the conceit that the Bible is a strange book, because it is. Um, And it explains a lot of the things that are strange about it, which is really interesting. And it's from the standpoint of scholarship, so you know that you're actually, you're getting into the depth of what the text says. It's not just a devotional, which devotionals are great, um, but it's a little more in-depth in nature. And then there's also Gospel and Life podcast, which is just Tim Keller's sermon podcast, which is always a good go-to for me. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality that I mentioned earlier has their own podcast. And then another one that I love that's kind of doesn't really fit in this group, but it does for me, is called Heavyweights. And it's not a Christian perspective podcast, but it's basically a podcast of stories about reconciliation that like usually leave me a little bit misty-eyed and... Um, I can always see, that's one of the really fun things as you grow in like looking for the telos that's being given to you that you're receiving. You learn to see Jesus as the telos, the subversive telos in other people's stories. When a good story is told that's pointing towards him, it makes you worship even if they don't mention his name at all. And that's what that podcast does for me. I'm like, oh, that's what Jesus does. He reconciles us. Um, Another great practice for receiving It's called Daily Office, and it's an Anglican practice. It's basically just short Bible readings throughout the day that you take a moment, a few minutes to read, say a quick prayer um, to sort of reorient you at various times. And they each have names, and they're kind of meant to correspond with the hours leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. And one of my favorites is called Compline, which means the end of the day. And the way that I heard it was explained was I close my eyes knowing that when I open them, I may see you face to face. So it's sort of like the capstone on your day. Um, A friend of mine who pastors a church in Houston has a really great plan that I actually just heard about this week that fits really nicely into the daily office. And it's called Praying the Bible. And it's three simple steps. Read a passage, 
Say it in your own words and pray a response, echoing it, saying, I don't like that, which is okay. Um, that's hard for me. I don't want to do that. Or help me change my heart. Make me more like you. Whatever your response is to the passage, just praying that, pouring your heart out to God. There's also a Book of Common Prayer reading plan that has eight different readings where you can go through that in your day. But in some ways, the whole point of what Jesus is saying in John 15 is that listening and receiving is only the beginning of abiding in Him. See, true abiding in Jesus leads to the third category of love-shaping practices, which is obeying. And verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus says abiding in his love and keeping his commandments are so intrinsically connected to abiding in the love of God that you actually experience a deeper abiding when, a deeper abiding when, you, when you obey him. And in some ways, you can't experience fully abiding in Jesus until you obey him. And so you'll remain and linger in his love the more that you obey what he's calling you into. And that can sound very amorphous and like, well, what, what am I supposed to obey? What am I supposed to do? And Jesus, I think, predicts that reaction and says, I'll make it really simple for you. This is my commandment. In verse 9, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, when we abide in his love, the nature of our fruitfulness is love that lays down its life. That's the fruit of a life with God. See, we bear the same fruit the more we abide in the vine that we are branches of. It's, amazing, it's an amazing feeling to step into a situation where you know that what it is you're doing and being called to do is so not who you are in fleshly terms. Like, it's not my personality. It's not what I would want to do if I were to sit down and think about it. Yet I find myself walking into this thing. It can be scary, um, but there's ultimately no better feeling. And I have two examples of this that kind of show the breadth of what that might mean. See, this is the category that doesn't have a very specific practice for you to duplicate because it's based on hearing from the Spirit what He's speaking to you. Um, so these examples, not meant to make me look good in any way, just to share, hopefully, examples showing the full scope of what this might mean. So there's a woman who lives in Culver City. Um, she's sort of uh, transient, where she's always in different places throughout the city. And more recently, I hadn't seen her in a long time, and I ran into her recently. And she recognized me and remembered me. And she was very upset that day. And crying and saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, can you please help me? You have to help me. God told me to sit on this bench because you would help me. <laughs> Which is like, okay, uh, that's a lot of pressure. But, um, and so I talked to her for a little while. And 
she rents a room. She didn't have enough money. She said she had a job, but she didn't get paid till the first of the month. Could I help her so she didn't get kicked out of her room? And so I was like, well, it's a lot of money that you're asking for, but I don't know. I felt, yeah, the fruit of abiding was I felt like I wanted to do it. I felt like I was being called to do it, so I did it. And at the same time, you kind of have a parallel feeling of like, am I getting taken advantage of? If I am, that's okay. Jesus allowed himself to be taken advantage of for us. Um, and I did that. And I also gave her my phone number, which isn't something I would normally do again um, at all. And she called me a few days later and was like, well, he said I didn't give him enough, and so I need this amount of money. And the interesting thing is that's when our relationship kind of turned and we stopped being transactional people and like people in relationship because I got to be angry with her, not in a hurtful or accusatory way, but I got to be frustrated as we get frustrated with one another. And I said, oh, you told me you only needed this amount. Like, why, what happened? And I was like, I'm sorry. Like, that was like a hard time of the month for us where I couldn't really, we couldn't really make it work. But then I got back to my desk at work and I couldn't stop thinking about her. And the spirit kind of carried me along and I remembered that our church has a benevolence budget that we use every now and then. I was like, well, maybe that'll work. And so I quickly emailed Brad and Tripp and said, do we as elders think this is worth our benevolence money? And they both said 100% yes. So then it was just a matter of figuring out how to get the money there. It was kind of complicated because it had to be given to the place she rented the room because it was so much money. And I came up with this whole plan, but then I remembered, oh, I'm meeting a friend for dinner tonight. I can't take this money. I was like, or he gets to go with me and be my wingman. <laughs> so we had dinner, and it's, um, it's a guy who's um, part of the church. Um, he's not here this morning. Dan, he's a good guy. Um, we had dinner, and I was like, well, I have an adventure for us tonight if you want to do this. He was like, I'm up for adventures. So after we had dinner, we went down and went to the motel and um, knocked on her door and went with her to the office and gave the money. And um, yeah, it's not that there was some like cathartic moment where like the heavens parted and I was like, you are being obedient, you are doing what God wants for you. But we walked to get her some food afterwards, just me and Dan, and bring it back to her. And it was like accidental missional community where we're just like walking down the road, like just enjoying being a part of new creation, being a part of what God's doing in the world. Um, and then we're riffing on that, like, can you believe that, like, this just happened, and it's, like, bringing us so much, so much joy, and we're getting to do this, and this is, like, what life should be like. And so it just leads to worship and more of the same. So things like that are possible, because that's not something I would do. That's not who I am in the flesh. I would never have done that. That's the last thing I would do with my Tuesday night. Um, but I think, at least I have to believe in faith that it's fruit of the, my desire to have my wants reoriented and to abide in Jesus more deeply. And then the other example is very different. Um, we had family visiting recently, and when you're in confined spaces with family and we were also traveling with them you start to rub against each other a little bit 
and there's complications and people say things that might be intended to be hurtful or not intended, but I felt hurt by some things that were said and it was kind of like a long track record in that relationship as well where it wasn't the first time. And the day that they were leaving, I was having some listening time on our porch in the morning and I see out of the corner of my eye them come downstairs with their bags ready to leave. And immediately, like, it was a lightning bolt. I was like, I can sit here and continue to, like, have them think I'm pious for, like, reading my Bible on the porch in the morning. And that can be all fine and good. Or I can actually do, as a result, what the Spirit's asking me to do right now. I can actually obey. And so I went in, and I said how I felt hurt, which was super uncomfortable, because it wasn't like, you know... If I had described it, you'd be like, that's nothing. Um, But I felt hurt, and they received it. They apologized. We hugged. We went to the airport. We affirmed our love for each other. Um, Yeah, and it was just, we're closer now as a result of that. Um, See, these situations are very different, but the thing they have in common is it required... Abiding in Jesus that led to overcoming my preference for my own comfort out of love for the other person. See, the fruit of abiding, um, the fruit of remaining in Jesus, looks like this. But the most amazing thing about the passage, and sorry, I'm going a little long, but I'm wrapping up. The most amazing thing about this passage is not any of the things Jesus says to do or any of the things I just said about how to do it. The most amazing thing about the passage is who Jesus says he is. And it's something that we can miss if we're not looking for it. So you may have assumed at the the outset that uh, this is just a flowery metaphor that Jesus came up with, talking about the vine, no pun intended, um, for we have this relationship with him where we abide in him and he in us, and it's beautiful. But it's much more than just this metaphor that he came up with in the moment. See, the disciples would have seen it through the lens of the vocation or the role that was given to Israel from the first moment that God spoke to Abraham. To be a fruit-bearing vine, the means by which the blessings of Yahweh, the one true God, would be revealed to the nations, to the entire world. Um, That they would be blessed to be a blessing. Blessed in order to extend that blessing to others. And they would have remembered in anguish how Israel had had not been faithful in this role. They remembered passages from the prophet Jeremiah where he says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. They would remember that instead of blessing all the families of the earth, as Abraham had been charged to do with the blessing he received, they had blessed themselves, making idols of their fruitfulness instead of extending it to others. Like the prophet Hosea said, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his altars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. See, almost every time Israel is mentioned as a vine, it's an indictment on their failure to take up that role. 
And I hope you hear that I'm, I'm not saying that Israel failed to live a morally upright life, though that was a small piece of it. The bigger failure was in not being who they were made to be. They had not taken up the role God had given them to extend his blessings to the whole world. See, just like us, instead of living in the joy of life with God in his kingdom, they bore the withered fruit of idolatry and they used their blessing to serve themselves. In doing so, they ceased to be a blessing and instead became a curse. And the disciples would have thought in hearing this, well, you're talking about Israel. Like, we know that, that imagery. Are you then going to take that role and responsibility for the entire nation of Israel and the world as a result? To which Jesus' affirmation stands, I am. See, Jesus says, I am the true vine that bears the fruit of sacrificial life to extend the blessing of God to the nations. He became that curse for us so that in Christ Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might finally come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He gave his life to reopen that conduit of blessing that had been closed by our slavery to sin that resulted in our exile so that the world would see what God is like so that they can receive his very spirit inside of them. Jesus says, I am the true vine who cleanses from the stain of indelible guilt. See, the cycle of the choice vine becoming a wild vine is a lot like our cycle of producing for and blessing ourselves at the expense of others, feeling some sense of defilement when we hurt people doing that, and then trying to produce more to cover over that defilement. You ever feel like in your daily life, you're just one step away, one pursuit away from finally being clean, accepted, significant, and whole, only to have it vanish when you reach it and having to go back looking for something else. See, over this fitful drama of trying to clean ourselves, Jesus pronounces, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You're already clean because of his word spoken over you. Nothing you say or anyone else does has this kind of power. Look to the fruitful one who through his cleansing and pruning causes you to bear lasting fruit. See, that's the interesting thing about cleansing and pruning being used interchangeable in this passage is that the the Greek root is actually the same. We are cleansed by the things that Jesus lops out of our life so that we can actually bear fruit for him. But you've already been cleansed ahead of that by the word that he has spoken over your life. So it's an ongoing cleansing. He says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Finally, Jesus says, I am the true vine which doesn't consume its own fruit for his own desires, but is consumed for the life of the world. His heart was true, yet he bore the guilt of our false hearts. He came as a grain of wheat, went into the earth and died to bear much fruit for you, child of God. This is the pathway to real fruitfulness and lasting joy. But all those things that we talked about at the beginning that we want out of life, this is the path. 
you're wanting someone to tell you how to get there, this is the path. Will you trade your wants, your unconscious telos of self-worship for Jesus, the beginning and end of all history, who revealed the true telos, telos and laying down his life and taking it up again, making all things new? Because he invites you into that life. He invites you into the same. Laying down your life to make all things new. It won't look like how you planned it, probably. You might not save the earth and look good doing it. But the fruit you bear will last into the new creation. Abide in him, his word abiding in you. Abide in his love. His joy will be in you and your joy will be full. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and uh, for what felt like a mouthful, but I pray that you would use it to encourage our hearts and to um, equip us, not, um, not just to have something that we can do to feel like we're getting something from you, but something that we can use as a tool to hopefully um, find practices that lead us into your heart, Jesus, and lead us to deeper experience and love for you. Jesus, I pray that you would um, you would change us, that you would help us to do that work of seeing what's forming our wants and to allow you um, to form them by pursuing you the way that you pursued us. And Jesus, I thank you that you have shown us what it is that leads to joy and fruitfulness by laying down your life for us. And that that laying down of your life and taking it up again is what empowers everything that we do and what is making all things new ultimately. And I pray that you would allow us to be a part of that, to experience you. We thank you for your love for us and that you allow us to abide in your love, that it's not something that we have to, um, that we only get to experience once and then have to re- try and remember what it felt like, but you give us access to you every day and we can abide and remain in you. Um, with our whole being. So I pray that you would cause us to do that, that you would give us the willpower, um, the desire, that you would form our wants after you, and that you would enable us to be people who love you so deeply that every part of how we experience our life and try to be um, disciples and following you is formed by that inner life that we have with you um, that leads to um, great acts of obedience, that um, fruit that we cannot bear apart from you. I pray all this in your name. Amen.